there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of Tea for C. If you're interested in clean, renewable energy, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has spent almost 18 years working for one of the most unexpected players in this space, and he started out working in fossil fuels. But before I introduce you to Phil Gomez, I want to make sure that you have signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a one-stop shop way to learn more about the professionals and the episodes we're going to be featuring that week. And it is so easy to do. You just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my renewable energy-loving Robusto fans, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is Phil Gomez, the Business Development Operations Manager at Shell New Energies. Phil is responsible for managing the solar opportunity pipeline, and that includes greenfield, co-development, and platform identification for Shell's global renewable energy portfolio. Prior to this role, Phil was the Electric Mobility Business Development Manager focused on the commercialization of Shell's electric mobility proposition. Another way of putting that is basically electrical vehicles in North America and in particular in the state of California. During the almost 18 years that Phil has worked at Shell, he's developed global courses for Shell employees on topics like natural gas and he's been an account manager responsible for selling natural gas and power to commercial and industrial clients in the Pacific Northwest and California. Phil also started out his professional career serving in the U.S. military right out of high school. That was almost 20 plus years ago as a petty officer second class in the U.S. Navy. Phil, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on your tea and coffee and ready to go? I sure am. Ready to go. Okay, wonderful. Does Shell have decent coffee in the office? I must admit we do, and plenty of different brands of tea as well, since we're little Anglo-Dutch. We always have to have the tea on hand. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, I know that you are struggling with the remnants of a cold, and I'm so sorry about that. And I hope that you will take breaks for tea and coffee to keep your throat moist. Sure. So, Phil, I want to begin by thanking you for your service. I know you were a young guy way back when, and I know we're going to talk more about your military service, but I just want to express my appreciation for the time that you spent in uniform. Thank you very much. It feels like a lifetime ago, but in reality, a lot of a great development during that time. I have no doubt I want to begin our conversation, Phil, with a bit of a confession, and that is that until I started preparing for our interview, I had no clue that Royal Dutch Shell 
which is the formal name of your company, and is the second largest publicly traded oil company in the world, was investing in clean energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of people are surprised by that. But in reality, it makes sense because if we as a company intend to be around for a lot longer, we have to be looking at clean energy solutions. That's what we're about. We're about offering a variety of energy solutions to today's and tomorrow's consumers. So unless we're looking at alternatives, then then that would be a mistake. So I'm very proud to be working for a company that is forward thinking and that also has true concerns of the environment. So when did Shell begin this journey into clean energy? And from what I could tell, just looking at the Shell website, it seems as if it's investing in all kind of the usual suspects, the solar, electricity, wind, biofuels, hydrogen. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, we've kind of been in and out over the last, I'd say, believe it or not, 20 years. But it wasn't until about three years ago until we formally developed a group called New Energies to house or umbrella all the different groups that are focusing and kind of get them together with a a uniform purpose and vision. You are correct. We have both onshore and offshore wind power. We have hydrogen, which, as you know, is a zero emission, can be applied for zero emission fuel for light and medium duty vehicles. Our solar, we're actually global in nature, deploying utility scale solar plants around the world. And believe it or not, we also have an investment arm that looks to invest in startups that are focused on a variety of clean and green energy solutions. And we have offices around the world that are looking to basically fund startups in that area. So all part of new energies, we also have a biofuels division, which is still a liquid fuel, but we're looking at more of the cleaner biofuels there. That came to fruition about three years ago, and we've continued to grow, and you are correct. Officially, we state that we're investing around $2 billion a year, but I would expect that to grow as we proceed and some of our divisions continue to grow. I read an interview with the director of Shell's Integrated Gas and New Energies Division, someone I'm sure you know, Martin Wetzelar. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And he said, because Shell is really taking the clean energy transition seriously, that he actually believes Shell could become the largest power company in the world by the early 2030s. Absolutely. And a lot of people are shocked when I tell them that for the past few years here in the United States, Shell has been consistently in the top three power marketers. So a lot of people see us as one thing, which is traditional liquid fuels. But over the past few years, we have gotten into almost every part of the power value chain. And part of that is marketing and trading. And we're consistently in the tops as far as from trading volume for megawatts and megawatt hours for power. So we want to be involved in every aspect of that. And I think it's a very respectable goal because we see electrification as a future solution to helping us manage emissions. And as we see the growth of electric vehicles, as we see more and more clean power coming and being needed, we want to be a part of that solution. Wonderful. So, Phil, as I read in the introduction, you are currently the business development operations manager at Shell New Energies. For those of us who aren't in your industry, what does that mean? And 
Could you please explain what your responsibilities include? Sure. I'm part of the group known as Renewable Power Development. So we're in the the development phase of of project kind of growth and delivery. At Shell, we have a business model that we call the DBSO. And the D stands for development. And that's where I'm involved right now on the front end. The B is the build or the engineering phase. The S would be the sell. And this is interesting because you can sell a project, but still have the O, which is operate. Sometimes we'll be an owner operator. Sometimes we will sell or move a project onto a different phase, but still operate it. So we feel that that's a model that we want to follow at this time. But on the front end, that D phase, the development phase, can last years. And so my role is to help remove hurdles and address challenges during the development phase. And that can mean a lot of oversight, coordination, really compliance during that process. So I'm really involved in from the very beginning to, you know, once we hand over a project, the development phase can last several years. So can you break down some of what is involved in that development process? What are some of the things that you're doing on a typical day? Are you in a bunch of meetings? Are you on the phone? Are you traveling to meet with local officials? What is it that you would be doing on any given day or maybe I should say on any given week, Phil? Well, that's a good question. It does change a bit, but in reality... My role is a lot about coordination. So as I mentioned earlier, we have a real global mandate in power and in renewable power and solar. So I may have to coordinate with teams in Singapore, in Australia, in Spain, in Brazil, in the Netherlands, and in Europe, in London. It really depends. So there are a lot of meetings involved. But one thing that I'm responsible for is I'm currently managing our greenfield development tracking program. And so in order to develop solar fields and plants, you need a lot of land. And that's challenging because either the hectares or the amount of acres aren't always easy to come by. And people think of locations that would really benefit from solar power. I'll give one example. It would be like, say, place like Hawaii, where it's very expensive to import liquid fuels. But the problem with that is that real estate is also very expensive in Hawaii. So purchasing hundreds and hundreds of acres or hectares is an expensive proposition. And sometimes it's just not possible to find tracks large enough for utility scale solar. And by that, I mean very large megawatts, say 20 to 25 and up to 50 megawatts that could power hundreds and hundreds of homes. So in my daily job, one of my responsibilities is overseeing our program where across the globe, we're looking at buying and leasing land that eventually we hope will become solar fields. And much like a development life cycle that may or may not be successful, we may end up leasing land that never makes it to that operational phase, but we hope they do. So overseeing the purchase, you can imagine all the issues related to that in the different countries because you have issues around the legal agreements, around the legal entities, around dealing with real estate. So that's a really exciting part of the job that takes up a lot of my time is managing our greenfield development. And by that, meaning basically you could say it's almost like land purchasing is a big part of this job. That's so interesting because the way that you're describing your responsibilities, you could be a real estate developer. You could be in a completely different industry doing what you're doing. Yeah, that's one aspect of it for sure. And if you looked at that role, it's very real estate focused. But other parts of the oversight and coordination, parts of the job would be more like 
ensuring that folks are complying with our operational and organizational realization standards, which is a fancy way of saying following the rules at Shell, how we get development off the ground. And by that, I'm also in charge of ensuring that all of our projects are captured and reflected in internal systems. So in testing that against the reality, because we want to make sure that we have the best information possible. A lot of office work, but I do get to travel some. I was recently in Spain talking with a team there that is very active. We're also looking to launch in Italy soon. So some challenging destinations I have to go to, but worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. That's going to be a rough trip for you. My heart goes out to you, Phil. So can you give us an example of a greenfield project that you have been involved in over the last several years? Maybe one that is now getting closer to being developed or maybe is being developed. And by Greenfield, I just want to make sure I understand, it's basically something that hasn't had anything built on it yet? Right. Absolutely. We use that term a lot in different industries. It's not a brownfield where there may have already been an existing plant or other activity. This is taking kind of this untouched land. And when you're doing that, you can imagine that there's a lot of issues. And to be completely honest with you, this is things that are just getting off the ground. So a lot of our projects on the greenfield side are less than a year old. So they're in the very early stages of kind of that development phase. So what does that involve? It involves not only getting your initial acquisition or getting the lease to the property, but once you do that, then the real work starts. There's a variety of different environmental permits. You have water right that need to be acquired. You've got your negotiations with the community to get their buy-in to ensure that You won't have any kind of negative implications here. We always want to make sure that we have that kind of right to proceed with the community because if you don't, then your project will be doomed from the beginning. You want to always make sure that it's secured. The early stages, acquisition is a big part of it, but that's just the beginning. Once it takes off, we also have the engineering folks that get involved and look at, you know, you could have a plot of land. But unless it's near an acceptable interconnection into the grid, then it loses its value. In related to that, you need something that's going to be somewhat near the demand load, meaning near either heavy industrial or population centers. So this process that we're looking at for Greenfield, as I said, it's multi-year, it's multifaceted, and you'd be amazed at the number of people that are involved. My role right now is to continually track everything to know exactly how much land we're acquiring around the world and at what cost and what the timelines are. Because sometimes our leases will be limited and we only have so much time to decide if we're going to proceed with the project there. So that kind of gives you an idea of all the different aspects involved there. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I should say, when you first moved to California, where you are now, you're in San Francisco, and you moved there, I guess, about three years ago, you were business development manager for electric mobility and solar operations manager. Could you, first of all, explain what you include under the umbrella of electric mobility and what your responsibilities were in that role? Sure. So as you know, uh, the the whole topic, the issue of of electric vehicles is something that's growing, particularly here in the U.S. and California. At the time that I was in that role, if you look at some round numbers, I mean, we didn't even have a million electric vehicles on the road in the U.S. I think we were somewhere close to 800,000. 
And in California, at one point held 50% of that. So over 400,000 electric vehicles on the road in California. Well, what do those vehicles need? They need access to power to charge their batteries. As vehicles have matured and advanced and technology is getting greater and greater, we've seen electric vehicles go from very small, limited capacity, meaning battery sizes that could deliver, say, 45 to 60 mile ranges. Now that range is increasing to 150, 200 and over with battery range. So Shell was involved in developing a program to manage power in a way that would be very smart and would be helpful to the grid. And we did a basically helping people charge their vehicles automatically at times when there were more renewables on the grid. And this is a real big important topic because I think for the advancement of electric vehicles, people need to be comfortable with how they charge their vehicles. Yeah. And so by this, are you referring to public charging stations or where people charge them from their homes? Well, a majority of owners would probably tell you they'd love to charge at home. But here in California and in other places, sometimes you'll see communities where a majority of folks either live in what we call multi-unit dwellings, either large apartment complexes, condominiums, those kind of living areas. So we decided to focus on places that had multiple chargers. So either an MUD, multi-unit dwelling, or office complexes. And that was our area of focus so that people could charge at work, meaning the office complexes and parking garages, or they could charge where they live if they were in a multi-unit dwelling. We certainly understand that a lot of people that do have personal homes and garages would probably use their own charger at home. But for those that don't have that luxury, we were focused on these other regions. Okay, understood. I'm guessing, Phil, that we may have some listeners whose ears perked up when I said that you were joining me from California, where Shell has an office in San Francisco. If I had said you're joining me from Texas, or maybe even somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, certainly not if you were in Alaska or places like that, they wouldn't be as <coughs> surprised. How unusual is it for an oil and gas behemoth like Shell to have an office in a state like California? Has Mm. that office been around for long? In this iteration, no. We've only had offices here in the city center for about two and a half years. But, you know, keep in mind, California actually at one point was one of the largest oil producers in the country. And obviously is still home to the headquarters of Chevron and other oil companies. And back in the day, Shell had actually a large tower that here in San Francisco that if you visit today, you could still visit the Shell building down on Bush Street in San Francisco, complete with our the old pectins and kind of the Shell insignia. Now, we obviously don't own that building any longer, but it's kept the name and all of the, the beautiful artwork on the building is still there. So that's a testament to the history of at one point, this was a much more of an oil hub, believe it or not, before it's kind of turned into now the tech hub of the world. So there's a history here, but now that we're back, we're here in a different format. So our office in San Francisco is our new energies hub for the U.S. And you'll find, you know, all of the professionals working here that are all working on either kind of clean energy projects or investments in those projects. Right. Okay. Thanks for that. You see, I just showed my own ignorance. And thank you so much for giving me a little bit of a history lesson there. Phil, we are, 
We are going to touch on your time as an undergrad at the University of Texas in Austin a little bit later, but I want our young listeners to know that you were an economics major when you graduated in 1993. Did you take any classes about renewable energy? Were people talking that much about renewable energy? And if not, how did you learn what you needed to about this industry such that you're able to do the job that you have and that you've had on the new energies team? Now, that's a very good point. And back when I was an undergrad, there wasn't a big topic and a big part of the conscious of the culture there. And so as I've moved into this field, there's a variety of extracurricular or kind of individual training folks can do, whether it's through certification programs or for conference attendees or individual reading. But the most important has been really engaging with people that we've hired from the outside and brought in experienced hires that have worked in renewable energy and different, let's say, solar or wind projects, talking with them, learning, finding out what their experiences have been over the last, say, 10 years. Because in this industry, if you have 10 years experience in solar, you're kind of the top of the heap. So it's a very young industry. And believe it or not, it's something that's still growing and developing. So I look for every opportunity to learn more, but really I don't have any official training from academic point of view. So is what you're saying, Phil, that you had to educate yourself? You had to seek out those colleagues with more experience. You had to do extra reading, maybe outside the office or attend different conferences. Was that pretty much because you were self-driven that you were doing this? Well, because I wanted to move in this area and you have to do whatever it takes to kind of position yourself to make yourself as attractive as possible because these jobs are very competitive. And I'd say that there are a lot of people, they they see the direction that we're moving in and they'd like to move into some of these roles. Now, that being said, I think one of the benefits was that I did have experience working in the state of California. I had worked with different utilities. I knew the landscape of the policy and some of the advocacy groups already. And that was really beneficial because even though I knew those agencies and organizations from a previous role when I was more on the natural gas side, it was seen that that would become very beneficial and helpful as I moved into new roles and new energy. So you build on the past that you have and you apply those skills, but also develop new skills as well. And I'm guessing that it took a fair amount of time outside the office. Yeah, it can, for sure. I mean, there's you can continue to really get a broad breadth of knowledge or really focus on one area. But believe it or not, once you start learning, you can become an expert on something pretty quickly because it's so young in a new area. And it's just totally exciting because it, it seems to be changing quite frequently. So for those young listeners who know now that they would like to get into the renewable space. Would it help them if they had an academic background? And if so, Phil, what should they study in particular to put them at the front of the line when it comes to the hiring process? I'd say it's definitely helpful. Any any type of 
education that you can bring to the table, whether or not you have an environmental degree or some type of power or energy related degree. But if you don't, all is not lost because one of the things that you'll see a lot of universities and even kind of organizations are offering certification programs where you can show that, you know, you've completed a program of study that gives an overview of both solar or the different types of wind power. It's not particularly technical focus, but it can also touch on the business aspects. So I would suggest young listeners to to look for both a formal training and if they're still in school, but if, if maybe they recently completed their education to augment that with certification programs. Do you have a place in particular that you would recommend for certifications? Yes, actually, the Stanford offers a wonderful renewable energy certification program. I believe that it's probably one of the best known programs. And it's something that we actually recommend to folks that maybe come to us, say, look, I want to get a good overview. I don't have a lot of background in renewable energy. And it's something that they can do on their own time. It's self-paced and online. It doesn't require any type of classroom activity, but it's all self-paced and it's a wonderful overview program. Terrific. We'll include a link to that in show notes. Now, as you know, Phil, one of the things that I ask my guests before we start these interviews is whether there are any topics they would like to discuss. And among the topics you suggested was diversity in the workspace and Hispanics in business. Right. Absolutely. And the reason I suggested that was that when I first came to Shell, I was amazed at the number of what we called back in those days employee networks. And Shell really supports, advocates, and makes possible for these networks. And one of the ones that I joined was particularly around a group called Shen, called the Shell Hispanic Employee Network. And it really is designed to augment basically employees and continue to provide development activities to give them exposure to upper management, mentorship programs, conferences. And I can't say enough about it, but Shell also offers this program across the board. There's African-American support groups, there's military, ex-military support groups, and there's a wonderful groups for both you know, advancing women in upper management. And there's also LGBTQ group that Shell supports called Seashell. So it is really refreshing to work for a company that realizes the importance of diversity and realizes that, you know, they're willing to make the time and effort to support those groups. Is that something you knew about Shell before you joined it 18 years ago? No, I. it was one of those unique surprises that I saw when I joined. A lot of people don't realize this, but you know, Shell is not a U.S. company. We are a uh, Anglo-Dutch firm. So we have European roots. And so a lot of things that Shell was doing early on maybe was surprising to folks. I mean, some of the advancement programs and equality programs we had were born out of some of our European headquarters. You know, we have headquarters in both London, in The Hague, and the Netherlands. So I'm very fortunate to work for a firm that really does respect the differences and individuals and and really kind of goes the extra mile to prove that. So I know before you joined Shell, you worked for several other energy companies, including Enron, Columbia Energy Services, and El Paso Energy, which I believe you joined right after you graduated from UT Austin. Is that right? That's correct. Did you know what you were going to do with your economics degree when you graduated, Phil? 
Believe it or not, I did. I knew that I wanted to enter the energy industry. And that kind of comes from having been born in Texas and grown up in Louisiana. It kind of made sense. I had kind of some family members, a lot of folks that had been in the industry. So it made sense that that would be a good choice. But that's not to say that I didn't consider other opportunities when I was an undergraduate. And I did have a lot of opportunities to to look at different industries. But I did intern two years with Mobile, which is now part of Exxon now. But that was my entry into getting to see the real world was two years of summer internships while I was an undergraduate. And you actually were a Mobile Oil Scholarship recipient. I was. And so I was very fortunate when I went to school. As you mentioned, I was a veteran, so I had the GI Bill, but that pays for a certain percentage of your expenses. So I did augment with some other scholarships, and I was very happy to have been awarded a scholarship after my first year of interning with Mobile. And then I received that for two years and two internships at Mobile. So I was very, I was always as an undergraduate, I think I spent a lot of time looking for scholarship opportunities and development opportunities. And really that can become uh, quite a big job as you're uncovering opportunities. But it's very important because I think that's the key to unlock a lot of success. Another job you had on campus we were discussing yesterday when we were actually first trying to do this interview. And you shared a story with me, Phil, about how you were exposed to pretty much all the recruiters that came on campus at UT because of where you were working. Could you share that story with our listeners? Sure. I was fortunate enough to be part of a work-study program when I was in college. So when I was looking at opportunities on campus of where to work, there was an opportunity to work in the business school in the uh, placement office. So I knew that that was the hub of where people go to get interviews and to look at which companies are coming on campus. And that's uh, definitely that office would coordinate with companies to schedule recruiters to come on campus and to establish programs where students could interact with recruiters. I worked there for two years and I had an amazing opportunity to engage with a variety of different recruiters and to understand what they were doing and kind of what they were looking for. I got to see what programs they set up and how they interviewed and what kind of processes they used. So everyone from like General Mills, General Electric, Ford Motor Company, a lot of the big consulting firms, and of course, energy firms to just to name a few as well as insurance. So it was a wonderful opportunity. There weren't a lot of people that got to work in that office. So I definitely made the most of it. You were a fly on the wall for all of that. Exactly. Yeah, I I did get to see uh, quite a bit and see how different processes worked of, you know, the face to face interviews, as well as kind of the what these firms were looking for. Fantastic. So it is so important when you're thinking about those on campus jobs to think about the intangibles that come along with being in a particular department or office. And the mm-hmm, idea absolutely. that, yeah, you just like nailed it with hmm. the business school placement office. Absolutely. Another thing that's on your resume that I've already alluded to, Phil, is your time in the U.S. Navy as a petty officer second class. I know you went into the Navy right out of high school. What did you get out of the six years that you spent in uniform that you're using 
whether today or may have used over the course of your career? Yeah, well, I would have to say without a doubt. And the reason I chose to be in the Navy was that I I believe the slogan about join the Navy, see the world. And you probably would agree with me that anytime we get out of our comfort zones and get out of where we've grown up our lives and we get out of the country, we learn so much. So having traveled at a young age to really far-flung places of the globe was just so eye-opening and enlightening and developing. As a 19, 20-year-old, being able to go to Singapore and France and Spain and sail around the world twice, it just was really, you can't buy that type of, of experience. I mean, I was able to go to islands and south of Sri Lanka and east of Madagascar. Most people wouldn't even be able to point it out on a map. So the cultural understanding, the development was really priceless. So I'm, I really am fortunate that such a development opportunity was available. And as I said, I kind of in the back of my mind when I did it, I was thinking this is my ticket to go to the university that I prefer to go to and get the GI Bill. And I wanted to go to the University of Texas. And so I made that dream come true by doing the right things, saving and planning and making that happen. Oh, wonderful. So I have two final questions for you, Phil. And these are questions I try to ask all my guests. This one in particular has to do with a time in your professional life when you struggled. And we've all had those experiences. Sometimes, like me, folks may have been fired. It happened to me twice when I was in my 40s. -hmm. Other times, it may be that they just had a difficult boss or challenging colleagues or screwed up a big project. Whatever it was, Phil, could you please share a story with our young listeners about what that time was for you, how you persevered? and perhaps a lesson that you learned in the process. Sure thing. And I think that that's a great topic to discuss because really you have to look at it as learning and development along the way because not everything you touch is going to be successful. Not every group that you join is going to be cohesive and harmony. There's going to be challenges in life, in your business world, just like there is in you know every other aspect of your life. So it happens. And I think that I can imagine a role that I was in, I think back, and I kept trying different solutions. Like I would request resources and get denied. I would suggest ideas or promotions and, you know, it wasn't approved. And so I kept feeling like I was hitting one dead end after another when it came to really promoting and marketing. And so I really had to have an adult conversation with supervisor and say, you know, I've tried X, Y, and Z and nothing is working. And I don't see how we're going to get to a successful outcome like this. So unless these kind of things that I can have more autonomy here, or get the resources that I think we need to be successful, I think, you know, maybe we go in a different direction. And basically, I take myself out of this role and look for something else. So and you have to maybe come to a, an agreement and say, yeah, this is the right direction for both of us. And it's not like sometimes you can say there's a negative connotation around throwing in the towel. But if you have tried everything and you've utilized all the resources that you have available to yourself and you still can't get to a point where you feel like you can be successful, then I think you have to make those hard choices. And I did that. And I think that, you know, it was something that I would recommend anyone to say, sometimes you think that, well, I've committed to this, I can't back out. But you can say, hey, I've given it the best go, and we're not being successful here. So let's 
change course. And sometimes it can be a radical change of course. And you don't have to be afraid to do that. And I've done that in my past of just saying, hey, I'm going to switch roles and I wish you the best of luck, but this is just not working out. And it takes that adult conversation to say, this is what's going to happen. So that's kind of the example I would give of having to make tough choices when things just aren't moving forward quickly enough. So are you saying in that case, Phil, that you left that company or you just left that department? Well, I was fortunate enough that I just had to change departments. But in some cases, I could definitely see that where you do have to change either your firm or your group and make those kind of hard breaks. Fortunately, in my case, I was able to, working at such a large firm, you know, kind of move internally. But that's not always going to be available to people out there. And it can be scary to just leave a job that's comfortable. But sometimes you have to make those tough choices. And were there any negative repercussions you experienced as a result of moving from one team to another? You know, I don't, from my point of view, no, but I think you have to be prepared for people to generally ask, well, why did you only stay in this role for X amount of time? And as long as you can explain that and, you know, really talk about it in highlight and augment the learnings that you took from that, then it can be very beneficial because there should be no shame in recalibrating or reassessing. And yeah, I don't think that in the long run, there were any negative connotations at all. Great. And I think that is such a wonderful example to share because especially when you've been working for a number of years, you are invariably going to land within teams or within line of management that may not be ideal. And Mm -hmm. if you keep trying, as you clearly did, Phil, to make it work, and you realize that you have just, you're hitting your head against the wall, you're feeling negative energy, you're probably feeling unenthusiastic to say the least about the work, then it is time for you to look for a solution and not stay in a place where you are stagnating and Mm -hmm. feeling like you're just spinning your wheels. Exactly. Great. So final time for coffee question, Phil. If you could go back to UT and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Mm. When I look back on my kind of college days, there were a lot of things that kind of turned out really well and kind of good decisions that I made. As I explained, you know, having gone through the process and intern, which eventually led to my first full-time job. But the one thing that if I could change, I would say I was really focused on saying, you know, I want to get into energy and I want to be focused on the sales side of that. But in reality, I think I should have been a little more broad. And also, even though I was non-technical in nature from an undergraduate, I think it's important to try and challenge yourself and say, you know, I want to experiment with a few technical classes or I want to expose myself to a certain technology that I haven't been exposed to before. And it may not be your life's work. You may not knock it out of the park, but showing that you attempted to do something that's not in your comfort zone or that may be severely outside of your focus area, you know, like if you have an elective to take and you decide to take an engineering class as an elective, people might look at you and say, well, that's pretty challenging. You know, are you sure you want to do that? But it may be worth it in the long run because you're showing that you want to be well-rounded. You want to expose yourself to a variety of different things. So 
if I could go back and do it again, I think I would try and get a little more opportunities to to be a little more well-rounded and have a variety of background. And I know it's sometimes tough with schedules and curriculums, but anything you can do to to maybe add something extra is going to pay off in the long run. Wonderful. I think it also shows a willingness to take risks. Absolutely. You have to do that and you have to to kind of get out there. And I would encourage people to take the risk. You know, maybe you're in the groups that you're involved in or the activities you're involved in that may not be in line with what you're working towards. But, you know, joining and participating in those groups can also pay off. You know, whether it's, you know, an on-campus group that is focusing on, like, say, an area that you're concerned in, but maybe doesn't align with your studies, it's still very beneficial. Absolutely. And I know that you were the director of the Hispanic Student Business Association. Yeah, I got to participate in that group. It was a wonderful development group. I felt that it was probably one of the best takeaways from my undergraduate years because it not only was developmental, but it also when you're on campus and you're able to kind of have a family away from family, it was a great experience. And I still actually communicate with some of those folks to this day. Oh, that is wonderful. Phil, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I know you're still recovering from a cold and I really appreciate you powering through and just so appreciate you shedding a little bit more light for for me and for our Time for Coffee community about all of this incredibly important work that Shell is doing in the new energy, renewable, clean energy field. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure and honor to talk with you. And I think that things are yet to come here. So keep an eye on what Shell's doing and other companies too, as we move into an area that I think you'll see more and more folks getting involved in, in this line of work and this renewable power area that maybe you didn't think would be supporting this because it's something that's really necessary and important to a lot of people. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.